Exodus 20, 1 through 21. And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness or anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to meet them or serve them. Uh, you not shall bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. The Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord, your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or your sojourner who is within your gate. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and mother, that your days may be long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, or his male servant, or his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpet and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled, and they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us, lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew back in the thick darkness where God was. Let's pray. Father God, these are some of the most familiar words of your scripture to our nation, our culture, our individual hearts and lives. And Lord, there is much of familiarity that has possibly brought life through these words, but my fear is that in much of us, in many of us today, there's familiarity with these words that makes them feel uh, more oppressive, makes them feel like a list of do's and don'ts, uh, makes them feel devoid of your grace, when exactly the opposite is true. Lord, you have not given us these Ten Commandments or the other 611 to find ourselves under law but rather find ourselves coming alive in grace through your teaching, through your instruction, through your giving of us a lens to see reality and how to find life in it. And so Lord, I pray that We would be people that do not separate your teaching, your commandments from your grace, 
but rather see them both working together to bring life, to bring vitality, to bring us to be wholehearted people who are able to be, as you said last week, priests to this world, that are able to embody you, exhibit life to you in this world, in this time, by showing them what it is to do the most life-giving thing, which is obey you. Lord, give us hearts to do that. Give us eyes to see that uh, through your Holy Spirit and through the authority of Jesus' name. We pray. Amen. Well, as I just mentioned, this is possibly the most familiar text in all the scriptures. This goes up there with the Lord's Prayer, uh, John 3.16, and uh, Psalm 23, of like things that if you have been just alive in the world today, you have some familiarity with the Ten Commandments. And I don't know what image comes to your mind when you think of the Ten Commandments. I don't know if you uh, think of just, yeah, baseline Christianity. Uh, This is just a, a basic start to how I start to form myself into uh, the image of God, or you, I start with this list of like, okay, these, some of them are just seemingly in all cultures, but some of them are very specific to Christianity. I don't know if you see them as like this political power card that gets played out where like Ten Commandments are uh, either put in front of courthouses in uh, city lawns, or they are taken out of courthouses is like this sense of like, well, are we a nation under God, the Christian God, or is that not the case? And it just kind of becomes like this political story. I don't know if you see them as like some sort of executive summary of the rest of the Torah, of the other 611 laws of just like, oh, hey, just like bottom line me, God, give me exactly what I need to know, and this is what it gives me. But ultimately, we probably don't see it as the Israelites see it. We don't see not just the Ten Commandments, but the entire of the Torah. We have arrived at the moment in Exodus and the moment in the Bible where God is going to be detailing out his 611 commandments to his people to say, hey, this is not just law as it's translated. As I always argue, I think a much better interpretation is the word teaching. He's like, I want to teach you to be human. These are people that just came out of slavery, and for over 400 years, they had a culture, but it was a culture of an oppressive nation that enslaved them. And so all of a sudden, they come out with no culture, and God says, hey, I'm going to give what it is to relate to me and to relate to this world and the reality as I've made it. Here's case in point, and that we struggle to see uh, the Torah and laws as as God's people saw it. Uh, Let me read over you two texts, one, uh, both from the Psalms. First from Psalm 1. This one says, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law, or his Torah, or his teaching, he meditates day and night. And this one from Psalm 119, uh, 97 through 104. Oh, how I love your law! It is uh, my meditation all the day. Your commandments make me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from an evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts, I get understanding. Therefore, I hate every false way. When I read texts like these, I realize that I have no real concept or category for this 
perspective of the Torah, of reading these 611 commands and delighting in them day and night. The fact that I would describe them as they are sweet on his lips, sweeter than honey. I mean, there's no one who came here tired today and people are like, wow, did you have a long night? I'm like, yeah, I just you know, started thinking about not coveting and uh, couldn't calm down till 4 a.m. And there's just no part of our hearts or souls that are like that. We read these parts of the text and we're like, these seem maybe oppressive or archaic or, or maybe they just seem just long and, and arduous and, and these are parts where we just have to skip and we're talking about like what do you do if your oxen gorges somebody out on the street if he does it once if he does it twice this just seems like really getting down into nitty-gritty details of boiling or, or roasting lamb and and what's going on with all of what's what's being laid out to us here this doesn't seem like something that I'm just going to sit on and ponder and turn over and find life like like these people did it And I think, again, it's ultimately because we miss what is going on in the giving of the Torah. We miss how they would have seen it. Israel, that is. These people that have just been brought out of slavery don't see this as just a long list of do's and don'ts. They don't even see it as this impressive, yeah, thus saith the Lord's over and over and over again and just beating them down with, beating them into a submission of obedience but rather they see it as a covenant ceremony. What is going on in Exodus 19 through 24 is actually a very familiar scene in all of the ancient world, Christian or Jewish or not. There's regularly countless scenes where a king of a people will come for a god, and that god will covenant to that king and to that nation, to them prospering. And as a part of that ceremony, he will lay out, here is my teaching. Here's what it means to be in relationship to me and and me to be relationship to you and you to relate rightly to the world as I've designed it so that you might prosper and might show all nations that I am the one true God. Just look uh, uh, here, the code of uh, Hammurabi. Hammurabi, this is a famous Egyptian law code that was found uh, by um, a a French Egyptologist uh, who studied the people and and found a stone etched in with this whole uh, long scene between Hammurabi and the god of Marduk, who was an Egyptian god. He makes this covenant with him and his nation. He comes down and he says, hey, I'm a supreme ruler. Marduk has empowered me to bring you his teaching so that we might be a prosperous nation. And then he goes on to list out hundreds of commands, such as if you have an eye taken from you, then you take an eye from them. If a bone is broken here, then the bone is broken over here. If an ox gorges man once on the street, then it's no problem. But if it's twice or three times and all of a sudden this happens, it has so many overlapping similarities to what you find in the Torah. Because again, what is going on in Exodus 19 through 24 is an extremely familiar idea. It's a covenant ceremony of a leader and a people coming before a God. And he starts saying things like, hey, I'm going to be your God and you're going to be my people. I don't know if you understand, but that's covenant language. That's why when you go to a marriage, they say things like, I take you as my wife. I take you as my husband. It's covenant. It's why God says in Exodus 19, hey, I want you to 
to consecrate yourselves. You will need to clean your clothes. You need to come before me prepared. Why? Because you're coming before me for a wedding. I have to laugh that all of you who have had First Corinthians 13 read at your wedding, it actually would have been more appropriate to have Exodus 21 through 21 read, which would have really confused your guests. It would have been like, other than the don't you know, commit adultery and murder, I don't get what this has to do with marriage. But, but regardless, this would be possibly most appropriate because that's what's going on. And why is it important to see it that way? Why is it important to see Exodus 21 through 21, the Ten Commandments and all the Torah in a concept of a covenant relationship or a covenant ceremony? Because it takes us out of this sense of this is God just laying out a bunch of arbitrary commandments. But it takes us to a point of this is God saying, I desire to be in relationship to you. I desire you to prosper. And the way for you to prosper, the way for you to experience life and life to the full, as Jesus said, and we all desire with all our being, is to learn how to relate in the good and the beautiful and the true that I have created. And I know how it works. I know how you'll actually be able to find life. Set aside what you think is reality and let me define it for you. Ultimately, this isn't the first time that God and his people have existed in some form of covenant like this. The first one is Genesis 1 through 3, where you see God and a man and a woman who are given the image of God, the ability to rule on this earth as his image bearers as he rules in heaven. And they're this king, this queen, they're brought together in unity and as they are in a place of flourishing and they're given a covenant, just like this covenant in Exodus 20, that covenant also had ways of defining how we relate together, ways of defining what reality is going to be and where life is going to come. And he says things like, hey, First thing, I want you to rule the world and subdue it. I want you to take, but to be fruitful and multiply, multiply, not only to have children, but to pursue culture and life and take what is beautiful about this place where you exist and take it all over to this world that is still unformed, that I have shown you the good, the beautiful, and true, and you're going to take it forward in the rest of the world. And then he also says, hey, by the way, where we're at in this garden, any tree, go nuts, eat of the fruit. Enjoy it together. Be in a deep, uh, joyful union with this world that I've made. Enjoy what's good and right and true, which is pretty much everything. But here's my one place where I want you to hold off and defer to me. There's one tree, the knowledge of good and evil. Or maybe even better translated, the knowledge of, of good and bad. And don't touch that. And it's not because God wanted to keep them in ignorance. It's because he said, hey, I want you to come and walk with me in the cool of the garden. I want you to relate with me and allow me to teach you over time, over space. Let me form you into someone who knows good and bad, and I will show you. Let me give this to you, because you can take it for yourself. But if you do, it's going to go bad. He says, you're surely going to die. And then you see a scene where a serpent comes to the woman and it says that she, she 
hears the voice of the serpent. She listens rather than listening to the voice of God. Hey, walk with me. Listen to me. Be formed by me. She listens to him. She's formed by him. And she sees the fruit. She sees that it's good. And she takes it. And then goes the man. He sees the fruit. takes it. And God says, hey, because you listened to her voice, you didn't listen to my voice. Because you both listened to the serpent's voice, you didn't listen to my voice. Then this all isn't going to work anymore. And now with your taking of the desire to, to define good and evil for yourselves, you're going to naturally, continually stack the decks in your favor. And it's going to feel right. It's going to feel good. It's going to feel true. But ultimately, you're going to desire what's best for your people and what's best for yourself. And you're going to continue to separate from each other. And you're going to continue to bring death and murder and stealing and commitment or the breaking of commitment and and a sense of not ability to trust anyone and running after all different ways to try to control reality because of what you have done. Because you had to take this and because you did not wait patiently for me to form you. And then, of course, you fast forward to another covenant ceremony, which is between God and Abram, who becomes Abraham. And you see in this covenant... God's saying, hey, everybody has run away, everyone is broken, and I want you, I'm going to bring you into a new nation. I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. You get this covenant relationship going on again. I'm going to prosper you. And simply what you're going to do this time, here's my terms of the covenant. You're going to circumcise all the males. Which seems like a really weird, like just one law to pick if you're going to pick it. But he says, no, I I want you to do that. And think about what is Abram's main problem in life. He doesn't have a kid. He and his wife are old, and he's, God says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. Only problem is, is the fundamental components to make a child are just not working for Abram and Sarah. And so God says, hey, I want you to obey. I want you to relate with me, and here's the command I give you, to, to circumcise everybody. And as Abram obeys that, becomes Abraham, as he obeys that, obedience yields life. It yields life to the full. Now all of a sudden, Isaac is born as the eventual result. Beyond that, God goes further, and later he gives them another command. And this time he says, hey, you know what I want you to do? I want you to sacrifice your son Isaac. I want to see, are you going to take for yourself wisdom by you hold on to it? Are you going to walk with me? Are you going to listen to my voice? And are you going to obey? And Abraham, Abraham goes through obedience to sacrifice Isaac before he can do it. God says, no, wait, don't do it. Now that I see you've listened to my voice, now that I see you're willing to walk with me, I'm going to bless you and make you the mighty nation through Isaac. And not only that, at the end of that story, it goes and it says like all these other people in Abraham's life receive children. And they represent all the other nations of the world. Because when Abraham obeys, both through the covenant of circumcision and through listening to God's voice, obedience yields life. It yields a relating to God that explodes in joy and vitality and all things good breaking forward. And so, taking that into uh, this, or this context of Exodus 20, you start to see these 
uh, this dissonance be created with how the Bible pictures obedience to God's law, His teaching, His Torah, and how we view obedience in general. Because we're in a time and a place where we believe in just the freedom, in freedom defined as no external commands or anything can be placed upon me. The ability to choose in any way, shape, or form that I desire to choose and, and to act on any impulse that I find to be good and right and true in my being. The problem is, is that we have achieved a society that has more choice than ever before. It has more autonomy, more freedom, more ability to act on any impulse as ever before. And as I've detailed out several weeks, and I just feel like we have to continue to bring up record-breaking depression, anxiety, anger, and just a sense of outrage. And we can continue to try to pretend like one is not resulting in the other. Or we can come to a humble place that says, hey, maybe us just trying to define freedom is I get to do whatever I want is actually leading to the fact that there's something very unsettling in our souls that says that, hey, we can't define good and bad for ourselves very well. There's something that says we need to come along a life-giving teaching or law to learn what it is to truly be human when it goes counter to how we think things should be. It's interesting, in our day and age, we see freedom again as the ability to act on any impulse that we have. Where the biblical writers saw that as the opposite of freedom. They said, no, the actual freedom is to be able to control your impulses and be able to act what is on what is good, beautiful, and true. So it's saying, hey, you have impulses. Your ability to act on that or your inability to not act on that is not a form of freedom. That's a form of slavery. But true freedom actually comes in saying, no, I can discern which impulse in me is right and good, which is the heart of a father who loves me and which is the heart of a voice that is not leading me to life and vitality but leading me to my death. And I'm not just slavishly going along by my impulses, rather I'm able to act on what is the good, the beautiful, and true as the creator of the good, the beautiful, true sees it. And you see that in these Ten Commandments. And, and just briefly, let's just run down them. I would like to just show what I'm getting at. This idea of God showing himself as the good, the beautiful, true through his Ten Commandments. And you see it right off the bat. You, say, uh, you see uh, in uh, verse 1, or sorry, let's start with verse 3, where the commandments actually begin. You shall have no other gods before me. One thing we know about humanity in general, at least one thing I feel very confident in, is that you will center your life around something. You will find all of your time and your energy and it will be centered around some thing. It can be your job or achievement or success of I need to get up and be recognized and have all of the accolades and have all of the uh, security and vestiges that come with being able to just control my destiny, de destiny because I'm successful. It can be relationships. 
could be relationships to a spouse or relationships to children or relationships to friends, a seeking of approval. It can be safety and security of I just live my whole life to know that I will be able to make it to the end okay and that everything is in line, everything is crossed off, all things are as they should be. It can be pleasure and experience of how can I just get one more trip, how can I get one more experience, how can I get one more um, night where I feel fully alive or whatever the experience is for you. It can be perfection, a sense of how can I just make sure that I don't fail ever. I was talking with a member this week, a friend of mine. We were talking both about how our whole childhoods were robbed of things that we truly wanted to do because we were just afraid if we risked, we would fail. And we were more concerned about continuing a a record of perfection than actually experiencing life. And all of those are simply examples of how you or I might relate our entire lives around something, but the problem is is that most of us do it and are completely unaware of what it is. Or maybe you are aware of what you orient your whole life around, but that hasn't given you any ability to actually stop doing it. And so you continually find yourself relating to safety and safety runs your life or relating to success and success success dominates your life and how good is god that he says hey do you want to actually come and find freedom here's the first thing you need to learn to let go of everything that you orient your life around that isn't me because everything that you orient your life around that isn't me will continue to demand more and more and give less and less and the one day that you fail it then it's all over. But he says, hey, no, come and relate to me as God who actually, when you worship me, it brings life. Because here's a reality that I'm continuing to try to drive into myself is what you worship, your soul will shrink or enlarge into the size of that object. And most of ourselves are finding senses of anxiety or senses of problems or senses of pain in our life because we're finding that our soul is actually shrinking down to the size of something that is never meant to be a God. And God says, no, you're not going to find life there. You're going to find life by giving those things up and holding faster to me. How good is God to say, I won't let you serve those things and me. You only serve me who brings life. We're going on. Verse 4. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under heaven. You shall not bow down to them or serve them or, uh, for I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and the fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to the thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. So a way of just worshiping in their de- uh, time and uh, day in Egypt was to literally have a, a carved piece of wood or stone that represented a God. And they didn't believe that was the God. They just believed the way that they worshipped the God was showing the God, this is how much I care for you, that I will care for this image of you. And so that they would wake that God up in the morning and they would burn incense and sacrifices to that God and then they would uh, take that idol and they would bathe it and they would care for it and they would bring it food and they'd bring all these things for that idol. And God says, hey, here's how you're going to worship me. You're not going to make an image of me and just burn food and bathe that thing and treat it like a little 
like my pal or whatever that you take around with you. Rather, I have placed my image out into this world. It's through billions and billions of people now. And it says, hey, how you're going to relate and serve me often is going to be how you relate and serve to them. It goes on, the third commandment. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. A lot of you have probably heard teaching surrounding this of just like, hey, you don't want to flippantly or irreverently use God's name. And while there's truth to that, there's a sense of like, hey, I want to be uh, clear about who I'm talking about and how I'm relating to someone who has provided all things for me and is a, is, is a good and loving father to me, that I'm not flippantly using his name. This command goes so much further beyond that. Of that in this time and age, there was a way in which if you have the name of God, you would use that to invoke power. You would use that to call down rain. You would use that to curse people. You use that to bless people. That's why God, when he said, hey, I'm going to give you my personal name, Yahweh, that's a really big deal. That's why we're, for a long time people just said, like, man, we're not even going to use this name. Uh, we're not even going to write it. That's why in, throughout all the scriptures they take the name Yahweh out and replace it with capital L-O-R-D just to say, like, hey, we don't want to accidentally evoke this name wrongly because there's power in it. And the way that you relate to God is probably not the fact that you're cursing or that you're using Yahweh's name to call down rain, but a lot of times what, you're, what we do is we presume to speak for God. And we take our own desires, our own thoughts, and we say like, well, I just don't believe in a God who would say this. I believe in a God who wants this for me. I believe in a God who certainly would be a part of this political party or that political party. And anybody who actually follows God rightly is going to think the way I do or vote the way I do. We take our thoughts and our feelings and we assign God to them. And I'm not saying that there's not a time to say like, hey, I think God, based off of his teaching, might, say, might order the world politically this way. Or I'm not saying there might be a time to say like, hey, I think the way that God says has revealed himself in his scripture is that what you're doing is damaging to yourself. Or what you're saying is actually not true. This is what's true. But it's a way to regularly find ourselves of allowing God to define himself rather than us define him by our own ideas, our own desires. So he says, hey, you're not going to take my name and assign it to your thoughts. You're going to regularly find yourself submitting to my thoughts and me, you forming yourself into my image. Don't form me into yours. Moving on. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Six days you shall labor, do all the work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male servant, your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. We did a whole series on Sabbath uh, back in January. A uh, lot to be able to talk through. Let me just... just Sabbath and this principle down into one nutshell. You need to trust God to hold your life together. In the Sabbath, this concept is a regular weekly rhythm for the Israelites. To say, hey, we live in an agrarian society and the more you work, the more fruit and the more uh, crops you produce and the more money you're going to have. And ultimately, yeah, work really hard because I've, uh, I've given you the command to fill the world, subdue it. 
But one day each week, I want you to take the moment to take your hands off and trust that I'm going to hold your life together, not you. Because ultimately, even when you go back to work, you trust that I'm the one holding your life together, not you. This might be the most spirit-driven point for some of you today that are racked with anxiety right now. Do you ultimately trust you have a loving Father who holds your life together, not you? And that doesn't mean you're going to be lazy. It doesn't mean that you're just going to like, you know, rest all seven days and say, well, God holds my life together. No, there's something that when we go to work, we work with the confidence that God holds my life together. And then one day a week, I just am going to take my hands off and allow him to continue to keep things spinning. Because ultimately, I recognize that all, every day of every week, he's ultimately the one who is waking me up. He's ultimately the one who's giving me breath. He's ultimately the one who's given me the opportunities I have, given me the background, giving me all the things that have created my life. And if everything goes upside down tomorrow, then ultimately he's given me that. And he's no more, he's no more or less in control. Uh, or out of control, I should say. And he's no more or less not giving me all that I need to thrive and have life and have it to the full. That is something probably many of us are familiar with, but it is a lifelong struggle to actually learn to relate to a God who says, I'm a good father and I know how to take care of you. You don't have to be the one who's white-knuckling your life and holding it together. I can hold you. Going on, number five, uh, commandment five. Number, uh, verse 12, honor your father and your mother that your days may be long in the land and that the Lord your God, uh, that the Lord your God is giving to you. There's a lot that can be said about just relationships between children and their parents. Um, ultimately, a concept of honoring your father and mother when you are under full authority of your parents and you are still uh, living in their home. It's a concept of teaching children that ultimately your parents, though imperfect, though trying uh, all that they can, are ultimately trying to lead you to life. Right now, every moment of every day with my sons and my daughter, I'm sitting there trying to lead them to life because I look at them and they say, hey, you're so filled with anxiety over this. I want you to realize that, that you don't have to be first all the time. In fact, there's a way to relate to your brother and your sister, brothers and sisters in a way that says, hey, I can care about you and I don't have to be first every time. And I'm trying to take all of these things that I see in them and I'm imperfectly trying to shape them. Why? Because there's a lot that I know and that they don't. But then as I continue, as I continue to age and they continue to age, the fact is, is that there's a vulnerability right now that they have, that I care for them, I bathe them, I feed them, I provide for them. But eventually that vulnerability is going to flip. Eventually they're going to be stronger than me. And right now, some of you are coming to the point where you're getting to a place where you are an adult and you're interacting with parents. Or maybe you are, have been an adult and you're interacting with parents and they've become the weaker, more vulnerable ones. And there's a way in which you come and you honor and you care for them. And that doesn't mean that you 
uncritically agree with everything that they did. I know some of you may have come from abusive households, and I want to recognize that is true and, and understand that that's a real thing. And that honoring them doesn't mean like I never actually, sometimes honoring might be I actually lovingly tell them of ways that they uh, were abusive or hurtful. But it's not in a way of I want you to now repent and I want you to fall on your face and, and, and grovel for my forgiveness. But rather it's in a way that says, hey, I love you. I understand that you're imperfect. I understand that, that you're trying. I understand that you love me. I understand that you're taking wisdom and doing the best with what you have. And I just want to show you in ways in which God is probably still shaping you. Or just show you ways that I experienced this and that I want to relate to you more intimately by, by us reconciling this. Continuing on, uh, number six, you shall not murder. How good is God that he, the creator of life, has ultimate value for life? That everything he does, you see God move throughout the scriptures and you see him regularly just having this sense of both creating life and valuing it supremely and creating a people that says, I want you to, to value life supremely. There's so much here that I feel like can be said on the political front because this usually gets to be a very politicized command. Ultimately, I would say this, this command is one that needs to work itself to political policies on the right and the left. That ultimately, I think that this does need to make us look at the way that we view abortion and we view life in opposed to personal freedom of a sense of like, well, I, I, I realize that there's real complications to having children and there's real complications to life being born into a family. But ultimately, I want to be a people that are so biased towards pursuing and valuing life that we say, how can we come around women and how can we come around families that are struggling with the ability of both the joy and the burden that new life comes in, that we would be able to be a community that supports life? But I think very much so on the other side of that coin of that issue is how we deal with immigration. I'm not trying to be a political here. That's why I'm going to try to just show you, hey, I think this points to both the left and the right. Of there's ways in which we look at children that are living and they're living in sub-human conditions around the world. And we say, hey, how, I, I'm not saying there's not complications. I'm not saying there's not wisdom to be had. But I still want to be a people on both sides that is so biased towards life and valuing it that we're coming from the approach of, of, hey, not how can we protect our freedoms and our rights, but how can we protect life and support it in every way possible? I don't know if that will necessarily mean just like releasing all laws and rules, but I know that will make a very different conversation in both of those political conversations. Number seven, uh, you shall not commit adultery. Again, God shows his goodness in this command by not being anti-sex, anti-pleasure, but rather being one that is so desirous of sexual fulfillment and sexual pleasure that he says, hey, this only can happen in a full commitment of a man and a woman saying, hey, I commit my life to you. I commit years of you. I commit to fighting with you and not leaving you. I commit to 
shaping you into the image of God, of sharpening you like iron. I commit my finances to you. I commit my energy to you. If we are blessed with children, then I commit the ability to walk along and try to shape them together with you. And in the midst of that, we have a physical union that's just so much more than exchanging pleasure and bodily fluid, but is rather, as the Bible is going to regularly say, a knitting together of souls, a knitting together of a lifetime. There's so much more to be benefited of a lifetime of pursuing soul unity that is often expressed in physical unity. But I think we have enough evidence to show this idea that, man, it's just pleasure and it's just, it's just an exchange and it's just between two consenting adults has no long-term lasting effect to say that's actually very broken and untrue about this spiritual and beautiful deep realities that are going on when a man and woman fully unite together. And God says, hey, you're not going to just go and use women for your pleasure and discard them. You're not just going to go and and use people and and cast them aside, but rather you're going to see the most life-giving union, a union that literally brings life, and one that is a full soul, a full life, a full physical and all things commitment towards one another. Uh, let's do eight and nine together for the sake of time, as well as just in a lot of ways they full, flow together. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. And both of these, they deal with the idea of can we trust each other in society? Now, I just think about how much of my time and energy has to be spent on just trying to figure out if all the people that I have exchanged resources and goods and services with have actually just tried to like get one over on me or take one by me or just let something go. I mean, I just think about how many hours my wife spends on the phone just tracking sure to make sure that like all the bills that we pay are actually legitimately charged and all of the uh, things that are accredited to us are actually legitimately done. Or think about uh, in society, uh, in this society, when it comes to uh, thou shalt not bear false witness. For them, their criminal justice system completely relied on a witness giving true and reliable uh, testimony. There was no DNA, there's no cameras, there's no ability. And so for them, their entire way of having society to function in a way that was healthy was that people would be honest. And I think about our society. Our society... Now we have cameras. Now we have DNA testing. Now we have all these reasons. And so we, in some ways, feel like we have the ability that we don't have to be honest because somebody can just, like, go and test for the things that are really important. And so we can have ways of just, like, telling half-truths to each other, telling social media truths to each other, and living in such a way that, that our dishonesty, it's not that people are being wrongly condemned, though that sometimes can happen, but rather we're creating a world where we don't really know each other and we just completely isolate from each other because I'm only presenting you so much of the reality that I want you to see and you're only presenting so much of that back to me. Uh, Finishing out uh, the 10th commandment, verse 17. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. Ultimately here... uh, Again, I've brought this up recently, but I think it's really helpful. We live in a society that finds happiness to be based on pleasure, and pleasure is just what more can I have, what more can I consume, what more uh, can I continually to uh, 
just take in and enjoy, and that will bring ultimate happiness. However, there's a lot of science to say that happiness is not driven by pleasure and consumption, but is actually by contentment, by stopping and saying, ultimately, I have enough. This is enough. That people, that's truly where we find long-lasting happiness, is a sense of, I can be okay with this. And how good is God where he says, hey, hey, I want you not to look around, constantly be looking at everything else and saying, what more can you have, but rather trust that all that I have given you is enough to find deep joy. I'm trying deeply in my own life to try to like live into that reality of not going out to find more to consume, but rather how do I sit in the presence of God and know that he's given me everything in this moment to know him, to relate to him, and to be fully content and happy in him. And so, with these first ten commandments, going on from here, there are going to get into some commandments that seem archaic, weird, backward, all over the place, oddly specific, oddly just for that time and place and not for ours. And after taking a break for another formation series next week and through the month of September, we're going to get into a lot of those commandments and I hope to kind of bring out the sense of what's going on with all these different teachings in the Torah. But ultimately, coming from the first ten, I want us to adopt a position of saying, hey, before I just run to judge that these commandments are probably irrelevant or silly or foolish, rather, how do these commandments reveal who God is and how he's designed the world that when I align myself to them, I actually might find life. Because if we actually had a society like this that was honest with each other, uh, that, that sought true deep soul unity together in the covenant of marriage, that there was a sense of that we didn't run after all of these other things but just aligned ourselves under worshiping God, then there actually, I don't think this is a sense where we see these commandments and be like, man, these are oppressive. We actually see them as, I just can't do them. I feel like I have no ability to actually uh, interact with these in a way that they can actually be a part of my life and my society. And that's ultimately true. I mean, that's what Paul said where he said, ultimately when the law came to people, it came to show that you're so far off from it that it's not that you're just like, man, if I try a little harder, eventually I'll be good. It's like, no, every single time I try, I find that I, the more I want to do these things that are good, the beautiful, true, the more I find myself just running to do the opposite from them. The more I try to do the, uh, not to do the opposite, the more I just find I'm weak and I can't not be broken. Which is ultimately why we rest week in and week out in the cross where Jesus comes and he comes, walks the world and he walks the earth in a way that he perfectly fulfills all of God's law and he says, hey, I am the fulfillment of the commands for you. And he fulfills that by sacrificing himself on a cross and taking sin, it says that he became sin on our behalf so that we might be the righteousness of God. That because of Jesus, all of these commands are fully fulfilled in us. But in that same time, I think we can take that and be like, okay, awesome, he's fully done the commands, and therefore my obedience to like learning what it is to relate to him and relate to reality is like no longer a big deal. When rather God's saying, no, I, I come to you and I give you grace, I bring you into the family, and now over time, I show you how to align yourself in obedience so that you might find life and have it to the full. 
And so, again, in coming weeks, show that I think actually these, the laws from the Torah are not actually archaic or out of date. We just maybe need a new way of looking at them to show that this is the way that God might have designed reality in a way that might be most life-giving. But ultimately, we need not just the forgiveness of the cross for our sins, but we need the empowerment of God's Spirit to come to us, to fill us, to be able to live in life giving obedience to the way that God has designed the world. That ultimately what we're doing in our spiritual formation series as we've been walking through is trying to give us ways with interacting with God's presence and his spirit so that we might be filled with his spirit in order to obey, in order to do what Jesus did and have a life that is as compelling as the life of Jesus. And so a way that we can... um, interact with obedience right now is to interact with communion. The way that we do communion around here is we'll have stations around, uh, around the room where there'll be bread. We can break off and dip it into the cup, representing the moment when Jesus comes and can become sin on our behalf to condemn sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. But as we've been saying week in and week out here, this is also a moment where we interact with the fact that we are taking the sacrifice and the life essence of Jesus into us. And as we do that, as we commune with him week in and week out, that yes, it's a symbol when it's in bread and and the cup form, but there's something very real on the spiritual realm that is happening in us. As we continue to form ourselves, continue to walk with Jesus, he actually fills us with his spirit. And as we continue to listen to his voice and not our own, or not one that is trying to lead us to death, will actually have the ability to be more and more people who are marked by the teaching of God and relating to reality in the way that he has laid it out for us. So in a moment, I invite you, if you are a Christian, to come forward and take the elements. If you're here and you're not a Christian, we invite you to stay in your seat. As always, we just say, hey, we're happy to have you here. It's not a ceremony that you need to feel like you've got to jump in. In fact, you can stay in your seat. There's nothing weird about that. Uh, Let me pray for us. I pray, Lord, for you to, um, Lord, give us a view of obedience and give us a view of walking in alignment to you that is not based in how we make you happy or how we uh, get your pleasure, but ultimately how we relate to you in a covenant relationship, how we relate to you and how we enjoy life and life to the full as you have defined it. Lord, ultimately that takes uh, humble hearts that are shaped through your spirit. I pray that you do that now as we commune together uh, with the elements uh, of your body and your blood. In Jesus' name, amen.